Welcome to Books for Good Trouble, a San Diego Public Library podcast. The poetry of Azure Antoinette is powerful and poignant. It also happens some of her work remains timely in a post-2020 America. Noir Part 1 1. I am guilty of drifting off to a world unlike the one we dwell in. It happens when you barrel your still soft head into my shoulder or when I deeply inhale your hair. I reckon hope smells just like this. I think if compassion had a texture, it would feel like your curly mane covering the skull that harnesses your brilliant imagination, the one that makes your eyes flicker and your toothless smile sparkle, like the undeveloped horizon. My brilliant, brown-skinned, bright-eyed boy, may you never have the pain of worrying about your unborn. The way that I pray over you, it wasn't always this way my small, gentle, sepia soldier. Now, we pray that you make it, wrongfully accused, or weekend visitation till we raise bail. Marty McConnell was my introduction to slam poetry, spoken word. But the first time that I saw poetry orated, read, and performed was at the inauguration of Bill Clinton. Uh, Maya Angelou was the inaugural poet, and she read On the Pulse of Morning. And that poem, even when I say it to this day, it still... My whole body responds because there was just... There was this way that she spoke that just dismantled quite literally everyone to look at the Washington Mall. You could see every every single person was captive. And I remember thinking to myself, I want to do that. I didn't have a delicate or in-depth understanding of poetry, of her poetry. I had I had memorized Phenomenal Woman for a program at church. I I knew that. And she's so beloved in so many households, but especially in black households, especially when it comes to black maternity. So I remember, but watching her do that piece, the end of the poem says something along the lines of of, of we can look upon the new day with fresh eyes and say, Good morning. And it continues to confound my understanding of just what a gift it is to be able to reach people in convocation, in conversation, in chatting, in just, in just a greeting. My name is Azure Antoinette. I am a CEO, an entrepreneur, a poet, an author, and an all-around lover of words, language, and, and books, and I'm really excited to be here.
By the time I got to Marty McConnell, I would say that evening when I was watching Deaf Poetry Jam and she delivered that incredible poem, Instructions for a Body, it almost took me back. It took me back to when I sat there with my family, my sister and my mom, and we watched Maya Angelou deliver on the pulse of morning. I would venture to say that I hadn't felt that way since. And so it was almost, it almost felt like some sort of return to myself. It felt familiar. It felt good to feel engaged. It felt good to not be apathetic. It felt good to care about anything. But I, I, I knew then, I knew then that, that that was what I wanted to do. I didn't know how that was gonna happen. I moved to Glendora um, in the summer of 2018. I went to undergrad there. I grew up, I was born and raised uh, 20, 20, 25 minutes east before they put the Ikea on the 10 West. So I'm, I was familiar with the area. I didn't want to drive through all the LA traffic. I was, I was uh, moving back home to take care of my mom uh, from Denver, Colorado. So I didn't, it didn't feel like foreign territory or anything. Found a nice place, a little cul-de-sac and you know, everybody seemed pretty chill. This was 2019. I was still traveling quite a bit and Towards the end of the year, you know, we're coming into 2020. I had planned to be in Puerto Rico for an event that I was uh, I was gonna I was gonna be throwing in in 2020. And while I was in London for a job, I got a call from my housemate that my car and his car got broken into. Um, I remember he called the police, and the police were like, "Oh, you know, it's um, it's a high traffic area for burglaries and things of that nature. You know, we we'll give you a report, call your insurance, yada yada." Important to note that, you know, the house the house was uh, was owned by a church. They owned the whole block. Um, I was the only African-American in the neighborhood and the only gay African-American in the neighborhood as it was owned by a church. And, um, but I, I didn't feel any hostility. I didn't, I didn't outwardly engage with the neighbors. You know, we pretty much kept to ourselves. Then COVID hit. We were stuck in Puerto Rico. My girlfriend and I were stuck in Puerto Rico uh, for... Jeez, maybe four to five weeks. Came home, you know, the pandemic was rocking everything that we knew to be normal. It was very, very strange, very quiet. The grocery stores, the shortage, all of, you know, everything shut down. You know, kids were home from school and the whole bit. So, but but again, it didn't feel different. Then, you know, everyone started, you know, to have to transition and they're working from home. So we had, you know, two housemates, my girlfriend and I, my dog. The mail stopped coming. They filed a, a false report. My service dog, Bella, you know, was attacked the mailman and tried to bite him. And he, he wrote like a full report and it didn't happen. You know, we, we were all there. Everyone in the neighborhood knew Bella. Meanwhile, things had really, civil unrest had started to build quite a bit. You can feel it. You can feel that something is adrift. People are upset. And, and all I kept hearing 
from a medical standpoint was like the immunocompromised and the elderly need to stay in the house. I was furious that I had to leave every day and my name was on the lease so no one else from the house could go and get the mail. So I just thought like, can you please have a heart? Can you guys really try to work with me on this? And I couldn't, no one would listen. And it, it just got worse. And then there was another car break-in. And the cops, the same thing. Oh, you know, this kind of neighborhood. But we're the only house that's getting hit. Then, you know, people are filing complaints that are anonymous about a trailer that, that we had. And, you know, all there's just all of this little nuance that keeps occurring. And I'm starting to feel a resistance building in myself because I'm watching the news. I'm watching what's going on. The marches had begun. 45, that current administration, it started to really stir. We went to Lowe's one day and we couldn't get access to Lowe's because they were, you know, it became public that they were supporters of the Democratic Party. So there were these huge Fords and GMC trucks blocking any entrance to get into Lowe's so that you had to go to the local Home Depot. The flags, the flags flying all over the neighborhood, huge flags in people's front yard. Like it became hostile because people were making themselves very visibly aware of what they thought. You had marches, Black Lives Matter marches on the street corners in front of the Home Depot. Then the police were coming. And then, and this is Glendora. This is not Hollywood. This is not downtown. Like, this is a suburb. And I started to just kind of witness these things. And I'm listening to my friends that live in the South. And I'm I'm talking to people in Brooklyn. And I'm, I'm, I, and I'm, I'm just thinking, like, is this really how this is going to go? It started to get to a fever pitch. And I'm very vocal uh, online on my Instagram talking about the things that I feel are important to express as my opinion. And I started to just see my post getting featured in things and being on these lists of black women to listen to. And all of this hype started to show up. This book, Wild, came out in 2018 and we couldn't process the orders fast enough. I had a poem that I read from Noir, the last chapter that Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, put on her page. And within days in June, it's got hundreds of comments and thousands of likes. And we are selling out on Amazon, on my website. Like I can't get the book printed fast enough. Everything on Instagram was like, buy from black stores, listen to black people, do these things. And so we thought the few other black authors or or, or black proprietors I was speaking to, you saw it and you saw all the gigs and you saw all this attention coming and DJ Nice is blowing up and we're doing all of this stuff. And I just, everything in me knew that this was going to end poorly. And in a month, I went from 4,000 to 8,000 to 10,000 people to being verified, getting signed by a literary agency. The book is sold out everywhere. And I think to myself, Do we have to get killed? Because I've been a poet since 2007. I got recognized and plucked by Oprah herself in 2010. And today, today at the height of you witnessing this man being strangled in the street, of you understanding that Breonna Taylor was asleep, there's a group of us that have been elevated 
to a place where you just can't unsee us. And I'm not sure that I like the result of this because my poetry was good before then. This book was out before then. And are you saying that this is required? Noir number two. Religion let me down long before you. Church, that ain't refuge. And government always act just as they paid to do, son. I grimace, cause you wince when I say, baby, let me pray over you before you go. Son, I pray because headline after byline after non-newsworthy death keeps claiming the once toothless smiles that used to greet first-time mothers who were never too certain who gained their footing from the young men that were nothing like the media portrayed black boys that still had the privilege to grow up to be men. You're a person living with MS for the past 13 years. How has living with MS affected your work, your art, and your life? Having MS... Having MS is something that I, <clears throat> I continue to be sometimes upset about. I, I get frustrated with myself a lot, with my inability to do things. I haven't been able to figure out if I'm upset about having the disease the manifestations of it, knowing that there's not a cure, or if it's just one more thing I have to combat being a black woman in America. I actually don't know which one I hate more. MS gets on my nerves. If I could describe it to someone else that doesn't have it or or doesn't have an experience, you know, caregiving for a loved one or a family member, friend, MS reminds me of somebody that shows up to your house unannounced, but you are family. They come at like the worst possible time. They surprise you. You don't like surprises. They were like, I'm here for your party. And you're like, cool, nobody invited you. And they're like, hey, can I borrow your car? I wanna get you a gift. They take your car out, wreck it, buy themselves something to eat, come home in an Uber on your debit card. You don't know where your car is. They didn't buy you a gift. And then they're like, hey, I'm just gonna stay for a bit and then they never leave. That would be the way that I describe multiple sclerosis. Like just, oh, okay, this is terrible. This isn't great. It has affected me in every single way possible because it it, it changes its mind constantly. And that's frustrating. It's forced me to take nothing for granted. It's forced me to ask questions which I don't like to do. It's forced me to ask for help, which I also don't like to do. And embracing speaking about it publicly has taken me well over 10 years because the last thing I wanted to do was walk into a space that already decided I was a fraction of a person, less at a disadvantage, maybe not uh, intelligent or well-read or didn't have access to things that would make me someone that could hold a conversation. The last thing you want to do is walk in and say, I also have an incurable autoimmune disease, which results in direct physical disability, which sometimes you can see and sometimes you can't see. 
Noir. Number three. My brilliant godson, forgive me. I know that I probably hold you too close. I know that I spend far too much time with my eyes closed, taking in the scent of compassion, running my fingers through hope. I say, I know. I do not ever mean to smother you, but I do. And by smother, I mean inhale your breath. Take on the man that you deserve to grow up and be so that my body can house the more than possible gunshot wound given you when you walk home in peace. When you grab something to eat, when you leave your job at the end of a day for wages that don't match your untapped intellect, when you stand on a railway platform unarmed to lie forever, still at the hands of free men who murdered darker-faced boys. What has Atlanta, Georgia come to represent for you post-2020? Atlanta, Georgia, I believe, showed up in my life. I I guess it feels divine or serendipitous. Um, And I had been there before, uh, 2015 or 2016. But there was something about visiting Atlanta in the middle of 21 and or maybe it was at the beginning of 21 it might have been february and there was there was something there was something so beautiful about seeing so many different archetypes of black about the ease that i felt immediately in the car in the uber on on the way to my hotel witnessing every police officer i see being a, a black male or a black female going to the grocery store checking into your hotel, seeing every intersection and every representation of what Black could look like. I am sure that my trauma in living, surviving, I suppose, surviving 2020 in Glendora impacted my need to not want to be the only Black face in the room. Seeing police officers and observing my body not take a fight or flight response, maybe not to respond at all, really told me that I had been affected more than I more than I realized. Being in Atlanta allowed me to know that it is possible to live and have joy and wave and not feel an innate need to protect myself or feel like those sworn to serve and protect me wouldn't because of how I looked. I imagine that had I had the honor and privilege of living in the Harlem that was home to the Renaissance, it would have felt something like that. What's noir? An experience in 2020. 
Noir was the last chapter of Wild. I, I, I love languages. I love, I love that the word noir gave me a reason to feel proud about the color black. As I've learned it in Western culture, the mutual exclusivity of black being dark and white being light and right, I carry that. It was beautiful to hear black in Spanish, negro. It was beautiful to hear it in French, noir. And it allowed me to feel proud of that in a way that was not saturated, assessed and reconfigured in American Western culture. I named it Noir a 2020 experience because I really love the concept of a double entendre. I love what that provides to the reader, to the person listening and receiving that information. And for me, 2020, you know, in science is, is or, or the medical field, what have you, is, is, is perfect vision. And from where I was sitting in 2020, that was all I could see is that everyone was just finally looking at it. Whether or not they spoke it, didn't matter. You saw it. You know what you watched, you know? You saw it. There's nothing but just what it is. You, you're watching it because it's happening. Not because I told you it was happening. You can't unsee this. And it felt like an experience because society would have it as me being dramatic, as me being sensitive, as me playing the race card. It's not a card. It's not a game. Noir number four. If I could be you, if I could take on your life, proxy, until you could move to a country that didn't call blatant racism justice, or upholding the law, or governance, or or, or, I would take on your mortality. I, I would, I would do that. And if I could, I will hold you behind my heart, never letting you walk home alone. Midday, early morning, or midnight, you, you would always be my baby. You, would never succumb to a society that clearly didn't have the chance to intimately know the texture of promise. And that, it leaves me sad for them. Almost as heartbroken as the mothers who have been left to wail. And in between whole-bodied sobs, pray their sons' names. That's going to do it for today's episode. I'd like to thank our guest, Azure Antoinette. For more information on the Books for Good Trouble series of programs, visit us at sandiego.gov forward slash SDPL podcast.
This project is supported by the U.S. Institute of Museum and Library Services under the provisions of the Library Services and Technology Act, administered in California by the state librarian.